Before we open the Word of God this morning, I want to highlight a couple of things for you. The first, if you would look in your bulletins just for a moment, you notice that there's a new Read It selection for the month of December. This is a book that was released, oh, over the last year, year and a half ago by uh, Tom Rayner. It's a book entitled I Will. And I don't want to uh, take a whole lot of time this morning to explain what the book is about, but I will tell you it is a, a very uh, powerful book. It's an impacting book, uh, a very relevant book, and I want to commend it to you. The second thing is we want to turn your attention to the country of Germany for our, our mission highlight of the month. I want to have you think about Germany. You can see where it's located uh, just to the east of France, just to the west of Poland. Uh, I want you to think in your mind, how many people do you think live in Germany? And the the guess that I would have had was completely off the mark. 83 million people live in the tiny country of Germany. Of course, the capital is Berlin. Uh, Three and a half million people live in Berlin. Just a bit about the economy. If you're a World War II buff, as I am, uh, you find it to be a a very interesting country indeed. There really was a dramatic uh, post-World War II recovery economically. It has grown into one of the economic powerhouses, as many of you know. One of the world's largest industrial producers. In terms of religion, religion you might be surprised to know, is actually guaranteed in the Constitution of Germany. And so the Catholic Church and the Lutheran churches are, of course, established churches there, but they are not formally sanctioned state churches. Just a few prayer needs for you to think about. And I I hope that by this time you're, you're picking up these little pieces of paper that you can find at the Welcome Center, filing them away, and so you can, in your daily prayer time, pray. For these nations, Uh, just a few things to highlight uh, regarding prayer concerns. You can pray for strong Christian leadership in Germany. You can pray for godly leaders who resist compromise and hold fast to biblical orthodoxy. Um, It would be safe to say that much of the German population is indeed unreached. And it probably won't surprise you to learn that there is a growing population of Muslims that need to be affected and, and changed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to have you uh, have a word of prayer with me, and we will pray uh, for Germany together. Our God and our Father, we thank you uh, for this little country. Lord, we know that many things have happened as a result of uh, that time during World War II, and, and we remember uh, so well that the time of persecution where many people were Uh, treated unjustly. Many people lost their lives. Millions lost their lives. And so, God, as as we move into the future, we pray for for this little country that you would do great things in the days ahead. I pray that you would raise up godly leaders, uh, church planters and pastors who love the gospel, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would have a desire to, to build up the church so that many people would see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'd show us what our part would be as we think about this little country and the role that you would have it ha- have take place and also throughout the rest of Europe, all for your name's sake. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to add that there 
is we purchased several copies of The Dawning of Indestructible Joy by John Piper. If you want to use that as a a resource to use with your families, you can pick those up at the Welcome Center. They're uh, a mere $7 a piece. I want you to think about uh, chains and and handcuffs and restraints, back-breaking work, long hours, sweat and toil, This is the language that Israel was very familiar with in the early chapters of Exodus as they were held captive by that evil ruler, Pharaoh. As you know, Pharaoh was a brutal taskmaster. The Bible says this, they they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves the bondage of israel is a sort of portrait that every human being can relate to for each of us is born as a slave into this world we have considered this bondage in recent sermons in great detail we have learned that that sinners are totally depraved We have learned a bit about the devastating effect of sin, and we have been struck with the the hideous nature of sin. We have learned that every sinner experiences spiritual death, spiritual blindness, spiritual inability, spiritual alienation, spiritual deafness. And we have learned that every person who is born into this world is a spiritual slave and indeed is in bondage to sin. Everyone who practices sin, said Jesus, is a slave to sin. And so apart from grace, we need to understand and and come back to this again and again, that sinners are foolish, disobedient, led astray, corrupted by malice and envy, and that we are slaves to various passions and pleasures. So says Titus 3, verse 3. And so the nation of Israel was a needy nation, were they not? Israel needed something. She needed it. She needed it desperately. Israel needed to be emancipated. Israel needed to have the chains removed from her hands. She needed to be set free. And so imagine with me the thought that must have run through Moses' mind when he heard these words from God in Exodus 6, verse 6. He heard these words, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with acts of of greatness and acts of judgment. Just imagine when Moses heard those words, the encouragement that that must have been to him. Like Israel, the greatest need of every person born into this world is spiritual emancipation. In short, we need to be set free. The title of the message is just that. I've entitled the message, A Spiritual Emancipation Proclamation. 
Something that we all need in this world, sinners all over the world need to be set free. And as I look out over the the congregation at Christ Fellowship this morning, there are really only two kinds of people. And if we had the opportunity to go to every other church in America, indeed every other church all around the globe, if we had a chance to go to parks and and high-rise buildings, if we had a chance to go to villages in Africa and Thailand, if we had a chance to go to the the sprawling uh, metropolitan areas in China, any other city you can think of, we realize this. There are only two kinds of people. The first kind of person is a person that we would consider to be a non-believer. And that is the person that needs to experience spiritual freedom. There are some of you this morning who are in that category. You need to experience spiritual freedom. When I describe the bondage of slavery, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Now, my experience has been when someone hears about the bondage of slavery, especially from a preacher, they might tend to react in very Uh, with an angry reaction, with an offended reaction. But deep down, deep down, if you have yet to be liberated by the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand exactly what it means to be a spiritual slave. You understand that you're cut off from God. You're not only cut off from God, you're cut off from other people. There is a, a sort of a disconnect, and you know it. Sin, as it were, has you by the throat. Simply put, you don't have the ability to love God. You don't have the ability to please God. You don't have the ability to worship God. And it's ripping your guts out. It's tearing you up because you know you can't do it. And so today, for some of you, may be a day of reckoning. It's a day where you, if you can follow the metaphor with me, you exchange your orange jumpsuit for the perfect spotless robe of Christ's righteousness. Today is the day to receive forgiveness from every sin you've committed in the past to every sin you will commit today to every sin you will commit in the days to come. Today is the day when you will experience spiritual freedom for the first time. That's the first kind of individual that sits in the pew today. There's a second kind of individual, and that is the person who would be called a Christ follower, a person who is a Christian But even though you're a Christian, some of you, I would argue that many of you need to begin to appropriate spiritual freedom. You say, what are you what are you referring to? Well, it's simple. You need to stop, listen and learn. You need to stop, listen and learn. What does it mean? It means you need to stop living like you're a slave to sin. It means that you, you need to listen to what the Word of God says is true about you. It means that you need to learn about your new position in Christ. One of the greatest ways to learn about who you are in Christ is to come to church, is to be discipled, is to put yourself under the teaching ministry of not only the local church on Sunday morning, but to come to Veritas. If you're a young person, to come to youth group. For women, the women's Bible study that's available throughout the year. For men to come to Iron Man, to avail yourself of these opportunities to learn who you are in Jesus Christ. When President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, it paved the way for the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in the United States on December 6th, 1865. I don't know if you think about this how I do, but when I think about slavery, 
It seems like that was thousands of years ago. This ugly, nasty, unjust, evil system that as Americans, we embrace. But it wasn't thousands of years ago, was it? 1865. I want you to imagine. Imagine the morning when you are set free after years of abuse on a plantation. And I'm talking about you, not your husband or your wife or your aunt or your uncle or your mom or your dad. I'm talking about, imagine if you were a slave and the day comes with the inauguration of the 13th Amendment on December 6, 1865, when the slave owner comes to you and says, young man, young woman, today you were set free. And he takes the chains off your hands and off your feet. And you change into a pair of clean clothes that smell great. You've never known that experience before. On that first day, you, you were absolutely captivated by your new life. For the first time, you don't have your, your master barking in your ear. Work harder, work longer, get a move on. For the first time, you don't have to endure beatings when you don't do what your master has asked you to do because you have not been productive enough. For the first time, you can actually utter the words, I am free. I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. I'm a free boy. I'm a free girl. This is amazing. And at the end of the day, after this wonderful day of, of clean-smelling clothes and walking without being burdened by those chains, you decide at the end of the day to go back to the plantation. You check in to your former tight, smelly quarters. And you change back into those stinky slave clothes. Worse yet, you subject yourself to the tyranny of the slave master. You're going to see something, and I think it will be 100% of you. You'll see something today that you've never seen in your life before that you can tell all your friends and family about. You can say, I got to see my pastor preach handcuffed. The whole message. I don't know how he turns his Bible. I don't know how he flips the pages on his iPad. And some of you will think it's a little weird. And some of you are wondering how I got in these cuffs while I was praying. I think it's a little weird myself. But as weird as it might be to see your pastor preach the word of God in a pair of handcuffs, that is precisely what Christians do who have been set free from the slavery of sin, yet they go back again and again and again to their way of sinning. This morning, and it will be easier for you than it will be for me, I want to have you turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And as you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, would you stand to your feet out of respect for the authority of God's word as we read verses 7 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to to read it, to study it. We have a desire to know who we are in Christ. Father, I pray for anyone here who is still a slave to sin, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that if there's anyone here who is a Christ follower, but they have have foolishly placed the, the orange jumpsuit back on, they have foolishly placed the handcuffs back on, they have foolishly gone back to their way, their former way of sinning and living in a way that's inconsistent with who they are, may today be a day where they would draw the line in the sand and say, no more. I understand who I am in Christ, and I will begin to appropriate my freedom in Christ, all to the glory of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we gaze upon the words of Ephesians chapter 1, we are witnesses to a letter a real letter that Paul writes to the Christ followers at the church of Ephesus. You'll recall from many weeks ago, in the first two verses, we are witnesses to the divine favor that Paul celebrates and commends them with. It is important to understand that we are not only witnesses of this celebration of divine favor, we are participants as well. You see, we are in Christ. We are not merely bystanders in the bleachers watching the game. We are participants in the game. And so the apostle begins to unpack all the, the spiritual blessings that belong to every follower of Jesus Christ in verses 3 to 6, just to begin with. Last week, we saw the point of predestination, which is ultimately according, as Paul says, to the purpose of God's will and all to the praise of his sovereign grace. This morning, moving forward, we dive deeper and deeper into the spiritual blessings that belong to us in Christ. More specifically, I want to ask, what are the benefits of what we're calling the spiritual emancipation proclamation? And there are three things that I want to share with you. And we, Lord willing, will only have time to look at the first one of them today. We're going to limit the scope of our discussion in the message to verse 7. And in particular, verse 7, part A. And this is the first and important benefit of the spiritual emancipation proclamation. Are you ready? Number one, we have freedom. We have been liberated. We have been liberated from the power of sin. We have been liberated from the penalty of sin. And you would ask, and I hope you're asking this question, exactly how can it be, or as Columbo would have said, exactly how can it be that we have spiritual freedom? And the answer is in verse 7. And it's a powerful answer. The answer to that question is this. We have been redeemed. You remember the old hymn, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. The only reason that we can sit together 
and affirm the reality that we have spiritual freedom is because of the great reality of redemption. We have been redeemed. And there are three things I want you to see about this great reality of redemption. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Three things that we will highlight and we will be done. Number one, I want you to see the trauma of redemption. The trauma of redemption. You say, why would you refer to it as the trauma of redemption? Because those of us who have been redeemed, and by the way, it's not all of us. Remember, there are two kinds of people. There are the redeemed and there are the unredeemed. And I've said it before, and I'll likely say it again, that every Puritan preacher, no matter how big the congregation was, always saw two kinds of people in the congregation. Some were redeemed, some were unredeemed. And so some of you, chances are, are unredeemed. And so you ask the question, again, why the trauma of redemption? Well, we have to say there is something that precipitates redemption, There's some bad news that that makes it necessary for you and I to be redeemed. In fact, there is no greater trauma than the one who is lost and without hope and without God. You think of disease. You think of trials. You think of poverty. You think of being abused. You even think of, of something that I've referred to as physical slavery. Those are all horrible things. But they all pale in comparison to the trauma of the one who is not in right standing with God. The one who is lost and without hope and without God. I want you to see some elements of the trauma of redemption. First, realize that every person is born in sin. This is the first part of the trauma of redemption. King David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Therefore, this person needs to be redeemed. Every person is not only conceived in sin, every person, and by the way, this is the one most of us, I think, can stomach. Some of us don't like it because it, it suggests that when you were born, you were a sinner. You, you didn't become a sinner. You weren't made into a sinner. You were born as a sinner. So I think we can stomach that one. The next one's more difficult to stomach, and that is every person is compelled to obey sin. Every person is compelled to obey sin. Paul says in Romans 6, 16, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Every unconverted person is of the latter ilk. That is, they are compelled to obey sin. John MacArthur describes this. In stark and vivid terms, he says, quote, sin is a cruel tyrant. It is the most devastating and degenerating power ever to afflict the human race. It corrupts the entire person, infecting the soul, polluting the mind, defiling the conscience, contaminating the affections and poisoning the will. It is the life-destroying, soul-condemning cancer that festers and grows in every unredeemed human heart like an incurable gangrene, close quote. You see, if you're here this morning and you are numbered among the unconverted, 
If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not walking with Jesus, you understand exactly what Dr. MacArthur is saying. You know deep down, you might even be angry when you hear the preacher say all these things about you. You might be angry at the Bible who refers to you in these horrible ways. But at the end of the day, when you lay alone in your bed and you gaze at the stars or you look out at the blackness of the night, you know that apart from grace, you're a slave to sin and that there's nothing that you can do about it. Additionally, every person is cooped up by sin. You're cooped up by sin. Indeed, this is a cage that is locked tight and holds every person with an iron-clad grip. If you're still locked in this cage of sin, once again, you understand the lingo. You understand exactly what I'm referring to. It's a daily reality. And here's what it looks like. You're a slave to your addictions. You're a slave to your addictions. You're a slave to to drugs. You're a slave to alcohol. And these things are ruining your life. You say, Pastor, those aren't the things I'm a slave to. Perhaps you're a slave to your passions. It's sex and pornography that dominates your every thought. You're a slave to your emotions. Anger is out of control. Fear consumes your every thought. Jealousy clouds your judgment. You're a mess, as it were. Remember the words of Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Wayne Grudem says, because we are sinners in bondage to sin and Satan, we need someone to provide redemption and thereby redeem us out of bondage. Fourth, I want you to see that every person who is in Christ has been redeemed. If you're in Christ, you have been redeemed. This is the trauma of redemption. This is what precipitates redemption. But move with me from the trauma of redemption to the truth of redemption. And I must say, this is where we reach a fork in the road and it gets really, really exciting. If you look in your notes on the bulletin, you'll see that there are three Greek words that paint a picture of the story of redemption. If you will indulge me for a few minutes, I'm going to give you those Greek words up front. And it's not so important that you remember the Greek words. What is important is that you remember what the Greek words signify. The first Greek word is a, is a fascinating little word. It's the word hagarazo. Hagarazo. Here's what it means. It means to purchase in the slave market. I want to show you, if you would turn in your Bibles with me, we're going to look at a number of verses and have you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. And I want to show you a couple places where each of these words surfaces in the Bible. And I think it'll help you a great deal in understanding the truth of redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. And I must admit, while you're turning, I, I, as much as a, an electronics guy I am, I still am not used to not hearing Bibles turn. So I'm trusting you have your phone, you have your tablet, tablet, you have your Kindle, you have your iPad. But I, I would plead with you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6.20. Paul says this, For you were hagarazo. You were bought 
with a price. So glorify God with your body. You remember the meaning of hagarazo, to purchase in the slave market. The Bible tells us that, that we were bought. We were purchased by God. Look over at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-three. Once again, you were hagarazo. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And then if you would turn with me to one final passage that helps us to see Hagarazo, look at the very last book of the Bible, please. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you Hagarazo. Are you with me? You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Hagarazo is the first Greek word that helps to paint the storyline of redemption. There's a second word. And you will see some relationship to Hagarazo. It's the word ek Hagarazo. Ek Hagarazo. And whenever you hear that Greek preposition ek, you know it's the, the English word out or out of. And so ek Hagarazo means to buy out of the slave market. To take out of the slave market to literally purchase someone for himself or for oneself. So look back to the book, at Galatia, book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, we see this word, ekhagarazo. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ, ekhagarazo. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Look over at Galatians chapter 4 verse 5. I believe, I can't remember if Jason read verse 5, but I know we looked at verse 4 that says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. That is, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, born of woman, born under the law, to do what? Echagorazo. To redeem those who are under the law. And so what does Jesus do? He purchases us from the slave market of sin. We are locked we are hopeless in the slave market of sin. And what does Jesus do? He echagorazos us. He purchases us, purchases you and I from the slave market of sin. The word suggests this. The redeemed, that is you if you are in Christ, the redeemed belong to Jesus forever. They will never be for sale in the slave market of sin again. There's another word that I would commend to you. It's the little word lutrao, lutrao. And it simply means to, to liberate by the payment of a ransom. I don't know if you're like me, but I, I love police shows and police movies where I don't like it when someone's kidnapped, but when someone's kidnapped and they demand a ransom, isn't it fun to watch how it plays out when the person is set free and delivered. 
I think one of the reasons I like those films is because there is a theme, there's a redemptive theme that has elements of the gospel built in, even if it's a secular film. Lutrao, to liberate by payment of ransom. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says that God gave himself to us to lutrao us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. First Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed, lutrao, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Here's what lutrao means. It means if you are in Christ, it means that you have been set free from the penalty of sin. You have been set free from the power of sin, and one day you will be free from sin's very presence. Here's what I'm convinced of. There are many in the body of Christ who who see the reality that they have been set free from the power of sin. They've been set free from the penalty of sin. And one day they will be set free from sin's very presence. But they refuse to live like God says they should live. They refuse to appropriate their freedom and they live in defeat. These are the three Greek words that help paint the story of redemption that we need to become aware of. But there's something else I want you to see. I want you to see that redemption that we're learning about, that redemption is definite. You say, what does that mean? J.I. Packer helps us here. He says, the doctrine states that the death of Christ actually, this is the key word, actually puts away the sin of all God's elect. Think about that. I'm going to break into the quote and just just let you meditate on this for a minute with me. The doctrine of definite redemption says there is nothing to chance. If Christ paid for you on Calvary's tree, guess what? You either have been redeemed or you will be redeemed. He goes on. He says the doctrine ensures that they would be brought to faith through regeneration and kept in faith for glory. And that is what, is, that is what it, it was intended to achieve. And so there is no ambiguity in this definite atonement. There is no hesitation. There are no roadblocks. When Paul says in verse 7, in him we have redemption, he really means it. This is not a possibility. This is a reality. This redemption is not a mere possibility or even a probability. This redemption will come to pass in every one of God's elect. Can you believe it? This is an amazing, amazing reality. Scripture speaks of a redemption that really redeems. Not merely one that makes it possible for the deliverance of captives, but one that actually delivers them. I would ask this question. What kind of a redemption is it where a large number of captives are still being held? My favorite Christmas verse is Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. And it goes like this. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice he didn't say 
he might save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He will rescue. He will deliver. He will redeem his people from their sins. Number three, redemption is also effectual. It is effectual, and this is a huge subject. We won't linger here, but Philippians 1, 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Fourth, redemption is irreversible. Some of you were raised in traditions, and I have, I've had some wonderful conversations with several of you, where you were raised in a tradition that taught you could lose your salvation and I, I need to say from my heart that this, this is not a gray issue. This is not a, an issue that we can go either way on. This is a reality that is taught from cover to cover in Scripture. That redemption is irreversible. Jesus has the last say on this. He says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Fifth. If you haven't seen it yet, you'll see it now that redemption is God's way. It's his appointed way of rescuing his people. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Amen. There's a story that has captured the imaginations of many people over the years. I want to read it to you. There was a city on a shore of a great lake where a small boy lived, and he loved the water, and he loved sailing. So deep was his fascination that with the help of his father, he spent many months making a beautiful model boat, which he began to sail on the lake. And one day, a, a gust of wind caught the tiny boat and carried it far out into the lake and out of sight from the little boy. Distraught, the boy returned home inconsolable. Day after day, he would walk the shore in search of his treasure, but always in vain. Then one day, he was walking through town, and he saw his beautiful boat in the store window. He approached the owner of that store, and he announced his ownership. He not only owned it, he made it. He announced his ownership, and... He was told that the boat was not his, for the owner of that business had paid a local fisherman good money for that boat. If the boy wanted the boat, he would have to pay a price. And so the boy set to working to do anything and everything until finally one day he returned to the store with the money. And at last, holding the precious boat in his arms, he said with great joy, You are twice mine now. Because I made you, and I bought you. My friends, that is exactly what happens when Jesus redeems one of his elect. We've seen the trauma of redemption this morning. We've seen the truth of redemption. And I want to close by looking at something that we need more time than we have allotted for us. But I want to have you look with me at the triumph of redemption. Would you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verse 7? In him we have redemption through his blood. You see, redemption isn't something that, that I can do. Redemption is not something that you can do. Redemption is not something that can be purchased from the heavenly storeroom. 
Redemption only comes one way. It comes through his blood. I heard a pastor not too many years ago belittling those who like the old hymns and the old preachers and the old theology that in his estimation was a bloody theology. Listen, there's only one way that we're saved. There's only one way that we can be liberated from the the chains of our sinful condition. That is, we are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. Hold your finger in Ephesians 1 and come with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And some of you, if you're thinking ahead, will know exactly where we're going as we move forward to Exodus chapter 12. Look at Exodus 12, beginning in verse 12. This is the story of the Passover. And scripture reads, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, the lamb in the Old Testament economy becomes the substitute for the firstborn son dying in his place. Then we move to the New Testament, which helps us understand the connection between the death of Jesus and the Passover. Just as the firstborn sons were saved from the judgment of God because a lamb had been sacrificed on their behalf and the blood was applied over the door. So, too, God's people will be saved from judgment. Why? Because the blood of the lamb of God The shed blood of Jesus has been applied to his people. Once again, Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Later in our study, when we get to Ephesians chapter two, verse 13, scripture says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ is costly. The blood of Jesus Christ is precious. In him, we have redemption through his blood. This is the triumph of redemption. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased out of the slave market of sin, never to return again. My question is, why do so many Christians return to put on the orange jumpsuit? Why do so many Christians return to sit in the stinky quarters? Why do so many Christians return and willingly put on these handcuffs that are so stinking uncomfortable? 
This morning we have seen the trauma of redemption, the truth of redemption, and the triumph of redemption. And the truth point is this. It is the simplest thing you could ever imagine. We have learned that the benefit of spiritual emancipation is spiritual freedom. We are free in Christ. That's the truth point. Every time now in the future that you look at verse 7 in Ephesians 1, I want you to remember this. Christ followers are free. If you are in Christ, you are free. But as I look around our congregation, I set my mind to wondering. I wonder if professing Christians here at Christ Fellowship, I wonder if professing Christians here in our community are truly experiencing the freedom that is theirs in Christ. This morning, I want to close by telling a story that will be a difficult story for me to tell. It's a story about a Christian man, a dear friend of mine, who for a season in his life was not living like a free man. He was living in bondage. I want to tell you a story about one of the most difficult and painful days of my life that I needed to experience all by myself. It was the day I got in my car and I drove to the county jail. I had visited inmates before, as, a, as you might imagine, as a pastor. I have had many opportunities of, of visiting inmates in the county jail and even one time had the, uh, the opportunity to go and, and visit a family friend at the penitentiary in Walla Walla. And I, Randy, I got to tell you, that, that was one of the most scary days of my life. If you want to hear more, I'll tell you later. But it, it was frightening. And I sat in the room with that man who was accused of putting a contract on his wife for $10,000 and have her murdered in cold blood. And he succeeded. And she died. Shot to the back of the head. And so visiting an inmate was... Not really a new experience for me. But this day, as I drove to the county jail, a little tiny jail, was much different. I got out of my car, and I was going to bring my copy to show you and just neglected it. But I brought a copy of uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I thought my, my friend would appreciate having this powerful and comforting book to read. I got to the first very intimidating door and I pushed the button and over the intercom, the person said, I see you have a book. You will not be allowed to give any books to the inmates today. After emptying my pockets, I was taken to a small room where I, I waited behind a, a very thick sheet of glass and I was completely unprepared for what I was about to see. For a friend came wandering into the room with disheveled hair and an ugly, smelly orange jumpsuit that said county jail on the back. And that was my friend who I served together at church with. He had a somber look on his face as he wore his smelly orange jumpsuit. And we talked briefly. And as his friend and as his pastor, I have to be honest, I didn't have many words. 
I was, to be quite frank, angry with him. I was saddened because of the condition he was in. And I remember thinking to myself, how does a professing Christ follower go from ministry to this stinkhole? How does a professing Christ follower go from the joy of ministry to the pain of a jail cell? And my conclusion goes something like this. My friend was not living like a free man. And the irony of this story is because he didn't live like a free man, he ended up in jail. I want to ask you this morning, are you fully experiencing the freedom that is yours in Christ? Or have you returned to the slave market of sin? Perhaps you're here this morning and and some of this is beginning to resonate with you. You realize that it is possible that as a Christian that you have willingly placed yourself in the, in the handcuffs of anger and you're enslaved by anger. Or you've willingly placed yourself in a position where you're, you've been enslaved to lust or you're enslaved to, to lies and deceit or you're, you're enslaved to pornography like many men in America are. Or you're enslaved to gluttony or you're enslaved to pride or you're enslaved to power, or you're enslaved to money, or you're enslaved to all of those things and more. The person trapped in the slave market of sin develops patterns that slowly but surely dominate your life. You may be here this morning and your life is dominated by sin, even though you're a Christian. The Bible says that is not true of you, but you know better that you you are living in the prison house of sin. When all along the Bible says this. In him you have redemption through his blood. In him you have redemption through his blood. For every person who is in Christ has been delivered. You have been set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. If you're a Christian and you're living in bondage to sin this morning, God is calling you to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to do a 180. It means to turn around and repudiate that former way of life. It means to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus. I want to show you something that I have called over the years the repentance matrix. And as we look at the repentance matrix, this this is very personal to me. This is something that I actually sat down to work on for my friend that went to jail. And I must tell you, and I should probably get a hold of my friend and tell him to listen to this message because it's a victorious story. My friend got out of jail and he went through a painful season of repentance. And it took months and months and months and months. But now, my friend who I love him dearly, we're we're good friends. He is married and has a, a child and one time told me, Pastor Dave, you tell my story whenever you need to tell it so someone else doesn't have to go through what I went through. And so here's what I put 
on the table before my friend. I said, what does repentance look like? Because that's the challenge today. If you are in Christ, if you have been redeemed from your sins, but you are like me and you still have these chains on your hands, the cure is repentance. And so you ask, what does repentance look like toward God? You see, there's a false view of repentance this day that just says, I'll ask God for forgiveness and I'll be done. That's one part of the equation. You may also need to go to your elders. You may need to go to your church leaders. You may need to go to your family. You may have hurt someone to the point that there were victims and you need to apologize to the victims. You may have broken rules. You may have violated your employer in some way, shape, or form. There may be authorities like police officers you need to go to and say, this is what I did. Will you please forgive me? You may have friends who have been impacted by your decisions. Your approach to temptation has been totally wrong all along. You may have to go to the community. In the case of my friend, Pastor Wayne and myself said he needed to write a letter to the, to the community that was placed in the newspaper. Because in a town of 12,000 people, word travels quick. We know something about that here, here in Everson, do we not? And so in order for repentance to be complete, it has to be both vertical and horizontal. That's hard with these, right? Vertical and horizontal. We ask God, will you forgive me? And 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But He's also asking us to make things right with our brothers and sisters. Repentance must be full. Repentance must be complete. This is the spiritual emancipation proclamation. It's time to trash the orange jumpsuit. It's an ugly jumpsuit. And it's time to live in the robes of Christ's righteousness, the robe that he intends us to wear. It's time for us to get rid of the chains. It's time for us to get rid of the bondage. And it's time for us to walk free, to be liberated, to live with God, to have clean lines of communication between both God and our fellow neighbors. This is the Emancipation Proclamation. We are free in Christ. Paul says it like this, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for this first very important component of the spiritual emancipation proclamation that we are free men. We are free women. We are free boys and free girls if we are in Christ, if we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Father, for the two people that we have learned about today, I I pray first for those who are not Christians. That if there's anyone here that needs to come to the place where they acknowledge their sin to you, a holy God, and ask for forgiveness, that that would happen right now, that you would do a work of grace in someone's heart. And for Christ followers, God, who have been living like I have walked around for the last half hour in these uncomfortable chains, If someone is in that condition, God, I pray that you would remove the chains. I pray that you'd remove that nasty orange jumpsuit and that they would walk as free men and free women and free boys and free girls experiencing, appropriating the liberty that is theirs in Christ. And I pray that they would experience the full measure of joy that is theirs in Christ. And that they would express that to their friends and their their neighbors and, and, and folks at school and folks in the marketplace of ideas. That you would be greatly glorified 
as this person or group of people have taken the time to courageously draw a line in the sand and say, I accept and appropriate the freedom that is mine in Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to fulfill the law. Thank you for for dying on the cross. Thank you for your blood that you willingly shed so that we could be redeemed from our sin. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, and one day sin's very presence. What what a a great delight and, and blessing it is to be numbered among the children of God. And so, God, would you bless Christ Fellowship? Would you cause us to take these things seriously, to continue to grow deeply in the soil of your grace so that you would do mighty things in the days ahead and in our lives, these dear people? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Johnson grew up in the southern states in the 19th century. He was a slave, mistreated horribly by his slave master. And then when President Lincoln made the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865, Charles Johnson was free. He got out of his stinky slave clothes. He moved to Chicago. God got a hold of his heart and became a pastor. No training whatsoever. And someone came to him, a dear friend, and said, Charles, you're a, you're a godly young man, but you need training. And so he made a way to have him uh, take the trip over the big pond, and he went to meet a man probably never heard of him. His name's Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the most famous Baptist preacher of all time. And he knocked on Mr. Spurgeon's door and he introduced himself and he told him, I don't have any money. I don't have any resources, but I'm told I need to be trained. Can you help me? And Spurgeon made a way for him to receive a scholarship to attend his pastor's college. It's, it's, it's an amazing story. And Charles Johnson is actually holding Charles Spurgeon's hand on his deathbed as he goes to be with his savior. And the reason I tell you that story is this, is Charles Johnson had many struggles in his life, even after he became a Christian. But there's one thing I know about Charles Johnson. He never went back to the plantation to serve as a slave again. We shouldn't either. May God encourage you today to know your freedom that you have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I think of that uh, amazing verse in 1 John 3 that says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Thank you for the great victory that we have in Christ. Thank you for the freedom that is ours in Christ because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. May we, may we never go back to the plantation again. May we never go back and willingly put those chains on our wrists. May we never go back and put those stinky clothes on again and live in the world and, and succumb to the world, the flesh, and the devil. God, this morning I pray that you would do a a mighty and a sovereign work of grace in many hearts across the room that people would become serious about sin. Remembering the words of Thomas Watson, who said, who would for a, a sea of misery endure, or a drop of misery endure a sea of wrath? God, may we become serious at Christ's fellowship about the Christian life. May we keep short accounts with you and short accounts with our brothers and sisters. And may we strive together in unity as we have this deep desire to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Whatcom County. So I pray that your hand of blessing would be upon us as we leave today. Encourage us with these thoughts in the word of God and all God's people said, amen.